if, uh, if you've heard me uh, speak here before, you know that I count the years of my life um, by the font size that I need to use when I public speak. Um, when I became an elder two years ago, uh, I was at, a, I think, a 16. Um, anything smaller than that, and I needed my specs. Uh, last year I spoke, and I made it across the 20 line <laughs> and was moving quickly towards something drastic and uh, poster quality. And um, I, I just want you to know that I went out Friday. In light of this sermon, I got contacts. And so I'm back to an eight and very proud of it. Um, it's added years to my life. And, but I also have other assurances today. Uh, the, the one and others are always on display at our church. Jack just demonstrated them by turning around and saying that if I choked, he had brought a spare sermon just in case. Um, so just to see that kind of compassion um, just means a lot, Jack. Um, one-eyed Jack. Um, <laughs> all right. With that out of the way, uh, I do appre- appreciate what is a, a pretty big privilege to stand in the pulpit here, and uh, I take it um, increasingly seriously, and uh, so I'll, I'll try to be serious about the work. The plan today is to walk through the first portion, first half, really, of Matthew 12, and my goal is, is really sort of simple. It's just to show you Christ, just, just, just point him out to you. Uh, he has given certain promises that if we lift him up, uh, he draws people. So I want to hold him up and really hold him up in contrast to the people around him in Matthew 12. Um, he is seen uh, starkly against the backdrop of the religious, um, the empty religious hypocrites of his day. And so I want to hold him up, and my, my goal will be that you will find him uh, so attractive uh, that it will move you to new affections, and that those affections will move you to to new obedience and to new following. So with that said, um, let me, as a a caveat, mention that uh, I'm speaking primarily to Christians in the sermon, Uh, but I understand not everybody here is a Christian, right? I get that. Um, Which is not to say that the folks here that aren't Christian aren't nice folks. Uh, Not to say you're not church folks or decent folks. Uh, Maybe nicer than some Christians. Um, That's a whole other issue. But if, if you think that because of that niceness or goodness or morality or effort or whatever code of conduct that you are okay with God, uh, I would say then biblically you are not a Christian. And I'll come back to that at the end, but I would just ask you to consider Jesus. You know, when, I, when we talk about these applications to ask a, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know the grace of God personally, to ask them to, to walk out the applications is really unfair. Uh, it's just going to be more work for them, and they'll just be more frustrated. So I would ask those who, who do not know Christ to just, just consider him. Now, that'll be, that's a great assignment for today. And then for the believers, there'll be some applications. But with that said, let's, um, let me pray briefly, uh, and then we'll look at the text. Father, um, you've given us a, a beautiful text to consider, and you've uh, empowered it with certain promises that it will not come back void. Uh, you have promised us that if we lift up Christ, he will draw people. So in that sense, you've made this sort of easy. Um, I pray that he would be seen very clearly today by the believer, 
uh, who would find him more lovely than they even thought before and that that would move them toward him. And for those who don't know him, I pray that they would find him much more beautiful than any religious sort of idea that they might have had before, uh, that they would find him attractive and that they too would move toward him, if only for the first time. So I pray that in all that you get glory and uh, that we'd be, uh, we'd be better for it before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's walk through the text. I'm going to read 21 verses. I apologize, it's lengthy, but it builds toward a crescendo sort of at uh, the last part where we'll camp out. So reading uh, Matthew 12, uh, starting at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How we entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is, was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them to not make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who said, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Uh, I'm going to walk back through those now, just giving some commentary as we build up really to verse uh, 20, 21, really 19 through 21, where we'll camp out. So, beginning, verse 1, Jesus and the disciples are walking through the field, and they're hungry, it's the Sabbath, and they grab some grain. I guess a handful of grain. And the Pharisees, who didn't seem to be concerned about hunger, apparently, but they did have a logbook of rules, and they said, uh, you violated one of the rules. Uh, Jesus could have corrected the rules and said, you know, Deuteronomy 23:25 doesn't say you can't eat a handful of grain, because it doesn't. It actually says you can eat a handful of grain. What it says is you can't use the sickle, which is sort of like harvesting for profit. You can't do that. So they didn't really apparently know their own rules or they had twisted them on purpose, take it how you will. But he, he could have corrected them there, but he took another tack. He challenged them with their own, one of their own heroes. Uh, he said, well, David and his guys did something similar in the temple. And, and your own priest, then and now, they work in the temple on the Sabbath. What, what is it? What have I done different than that? What have we done different than that? 
And then he calls really to the heart of the matter when he, he references Hosea 8.6. And he says, don't you understand? God wants mercy more than sacrifice. Something they, they didn't understand for all their religion. Now, apparently religion and understanding don't necessarily go together. They wanted a rules list kept. And Jesus went to a whole different place above those rules. And he says to them, by the way, if you, if you understood this, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. We didn't do anything wrong, but you don't get that. You don't understand that. So then he comes back to the larger issue of the Sabbath, and he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He, he even re- made reference to there's something greater here than the temple. You know, what he's done is they, they focused on these, these things, right, the Sabbath and the temple, and he very, in, in very few words, he goes so far above and says, don't you understand, this is, there's more here. And he, he's talking about himself than a building, than a temple. And don't you understand, I am the Lord of the Sabbath you're talking about. You use the Sabbath to control people. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's as if they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't even know what he's saying. It's like uh, they can't take it in. They can't understand. So he makes this statement. Uh, there's no sense that he waits around to get their approval. Uh, he just makes it, and then he goes to their synagogue. And there he meets this guy, verse 10, with a withered hand. And the Pharisees apparently understand that he's going to uh, do something. Maybe he's going to heal this guy. Uh, this guy, that we can imagine that they've been seeing this guy maybe for years. And one gathers, they hadn't really been particularly concerned about this guy because they sure didn't seem to celebrate when he got his hand healed. But anyway, so they, they're going to try to preempt this, this healing, and they're going to trick Jesus like it worked for him the first time. And they say, can you heal somebody on the Sabbath? And, of course, with omniscience, he could have went theological on them. Uh, but Jesus, as he typically did, uh, didn't try to correct people with big words that only a few could understand. He used words that everybody could. He said, well, you tell me if your sheep falls in a hole on the Sabbath, would you get them out? And it sort of begged the answer, well, yeah, of course we would. So it's okay to help a sheep, but you can't help a person. Are people not worth more than sheep? And so he is, with few words, and but, but very directly, uh, just annihilated their argument. And Turning away from them, he turns to the guy and he says, give me your hand, and he heals the guy. Now, imagine the scene for a second. They have just seen a guy who, let's, let's say the guy's had that hand, that problem, that twisted hand, whatever, for 5, 10, 20 years. He's a man. Let's assume he had it from birth. It just miraculously is healed. And what's their response? Celebration? Thankfulness? You must be the Messiah? No. They get together and say, we've got to stop him. We must destroy him. And the contrast is so stark. He is wise. And, and, and they, with all of their wisdom, can't handle one of his simplest arguments. And he is kind. And he is fed. He's feeding hungry. He's healing. And all they care about is their power, their control. And they've used that to manipulate people. It, it reminds me of the, the indictment that religion is is a way to control masses. And, and in fact, that, that's what they were doing. They were controlling people, and Jesus would have none of it. So they say, we've got to destroy this guy. And so Jesus and the disciples head out. And a lot of people follow him. And he heals a lot of people. And he says, don't tell, don't tell people about me. 
And you go, wow, and that happens a few times, right? He does these great things and says, don't tell people. And yet, if you're like me, you sort of wonder why. And it, it tells us there that that was done to fulfill uh, what was said about him in a passage in Isaiah. And that takes us all the way down to verse, um, really, as we approach verse 18 and 19, where we're going to hang out at. But he, not just because, he didn't want them to not tell about him just because of the timing and when he wanted to reveal himself. But fundamentally, he was not like those religious people. Think about those religious people who, when they were going to give some money, they were going to drop a few bucks in the plate. Remember what they would do? They would say, everybody stop. Y'all, is everybody watching? I'm putting some money in the plate. You see that? He is so totally not like that. The one who has the right to do that, by the way. The one who has the right to be seen. Uh, but how, how is he? And, and I want to spend a little bit of time there looking at verse 18 and 19. I just want to go through some of this description very briefly. He's described as God's servant. Uh, there's a lot of afraid in those two words. I'll just take one of them, servant. Uh, these were people that were not known. This, this religious establishment was not known for being servant-like. They were known for controlling and having power and protecting it at whatever cost, even if it means we've got to destroy somebody for helping somebody. He was a servant. He was God's servant. Um, the distinction in that little bit right there from them is huge. He was chosen by God. Um, he wasn't chosen by the establishment. The establishment probably would not have picked somebody with his pedigree, uh, definitely not with the, the context of his mom uh, and Joseph. Uh, the manger thing was probably a little beneath them. Um, he didn't come in and, and put people into great positions of power and authority. Uh, he wasn't chosen by them. I'm not so sure we'd have chosen him. But he was chosen by God. Um, he was beloved of the Father. Uh, speaks to an intimacy and a sweetness there that um, far from some cold, detached deity who can't be known. Uh, very personal. Pleasing the soul of the Father. You know, the religious people thought by doing all their sacrifices, that's how they, they were the ones that pleased God. Because look what we do. And he comes along and says, you don't get it. You know what? I'm going to please. And, and God the Father says to Isaiah, this is who pleases the soul of the Father. This, this Christ. His spirit's upon him, uh, Isaiah said, uh, versus a religional sort of, you know, he's empowered by religion and he's, he's certified. No, it's the spirit of God that, that is on Jesus and gives him that authority. To the Gentiles, he comes proclaiming justice. He he proclaims justice. Now, those are folks who didn't seem to care a ton about justice. They cared about control. He proclaims justice, and he didn't proclaim it to the end crowd. He proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. He is ripping apart every paradigm they've got. He proclaims justice to the down and out. That the people we would, if we we're those Jews, and we are those Jews very often, we just as soon not have to touch them anyway. And he proclaims justice to them. And finally, he'll not quarrel or cry aloud. He's quiet in the streets. He is so far from being showy and self-obsessed and self-promoting. But here comes the, the line that I would spend some deeper time at. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, what's that mean? Let's, how would they, first of all, take it literally? We all know what a, a reed is. They knew what a reed is. Probably uh, they knew what one was. Uh, better than we do. Um, reeds were 
we have them here, they had them there, you know, marshy, wet soil in a ditch somewhere. You got this long sort of fragile uh, blade that stands up and um, shepherds would use them to make sort of a crude whistle and uh, use them sort of in their line of work. And if one was bruised or damaged or broken, it really wasn't good uh, to make an instrument. And so you threw it over in the pile and later that evening when you needed to make a fire, you burned it up because it was worthless for really anything else. They understood what a bruised reed was. They understood what a smoldering wick was. They had lamps then, of course, and didn't have electricity, uh, apparently. And um, they'd put oil in a vessel, maybe something ornate in the city, but uh, to a shepherd it may be a horn of an animal. And they'd put oil in it and they'd take a piece of linen and they'd twist it up and they'd put it in and that was the wick and that made light. And when the oil went dry, um, when there was no more oil, the, the wick began to smolder and, and eventually it would go out unless it got more oil, unless it was rekindled and fanned. So they understood that language. What, what he's speaking to, of course, is the fragileness of people, the brokenness of people, that Jesus with people is so tender toward them that he wouldn't, he wouldn't damage the hurting that are like a, a bruised reed or a smoldering chaff. Now, think of the contrast for a second. He, he's come through there, and he's cared about the needs of his people. Um, he's fed his people because that was a real need. He has healed um, someone who probably was not socially high up on the, the food chain. He has challenged the establishment. He's shown wisdom. He's shown power. He's, he's been so... Um, godlike, but he's so tender that the picture we're given is that there's a little smoldering wick that we might naturally just ignore or step on it. He, God, is the one who would fan it back into a flame. He's the Lord of the universe. He can speak worlds into existence. Even now, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is God, very God of very God yet so tender to, to broken people. That's important. He's so tender to the broken that he's compared to someone who wouldn't even harm a bruised reed. Why is that important to us? Um, it's important to us because we're bruised reeds and we're smoldering wicks. Regardless of how we might look on Sunday, I, I recognize it's sort of commonplace to dress up on Sundays and uh, bathe apparently and do all sorts of things and um, and say nice things to people and call people you might not even like brother, um, call them sister, um, do all sorts of things on Sunday. But now, we know that we're broken, right? We got mirrors. We have mirrors. We, we know. We know what we say when nobody from church is around us, when our kids aggravate us. We know what we think when nobody else knows what we think. We know we're bruised. And we know we're frail. And more than most people will ever know, we know how close we feel sometimes to our wick going out. Especially when we're, we're struggling and we hear the testimonies of people who seem to have it all together. They don't, by the way. But the contrast of you feeling your brokenness in the world where everybody else looks so nice and together can make you feel very much like a bruised reed and very much like... Um, a smoldering wick. I wonder uh, how a Pharisee would treat us when we're feeling that way. How those religious people would treat us. Would, would they tell us, yeah, you're right. I've got my list here. And you have violated many of the rules. 
you really do need to leave because you are violating our holy place. Jesus doesn't do that. The one who has the right to do that doesn't kick us when we're down. He doesn't remind us of the 14th time we've done that this week. He's gentle and kind and forgiving. So much so that we see him in the New Testament looking over a crowd of people who were lost and instead of saying, ooh, these are dirty, icky, uh, I wish they just weren't here, he weeps over them. The one holy one, mind you, who is, who is ultimately the one offended by sin, he looks over the sinners and he weeps. He's the one who says to the one who's heavy laden with burden, by the way, the burden is often religious burden, which is ironic. But he says to that one, it's not, he didn't say, shame on you. That's what you deserve. He says, take my yoke on you. It's light. Take my yoke. It's better. It's not that he's ignoring our sin. I think about those ladies, the, the, one, the woman in the New Testament caught in adultery or the, the lady at the well who was... Um, socially sort of not too popular. It isn't that he ignored what they did. He told the lady, don't sin anymore. But Jesus is thoroughly aware of the consequences of sin. That's the one who gave his life for it. He, didn't take, he, of all people, didn't take a light view of sin. But what he did was restore these women that were broken and frail. I mean, think about that, that, that lady, the, uh, the, the issue of blood thing, where the, the, he's in the crowd, walking through the crowd, and this what I imagine in my mind is this older lady who has uh, not only a physical ailment that makes her weak, but apparently makes her socially a little bit out of sorts. And she just wants to touch him. And he says, somebody touch me. And, and she is bruised. And her wick is about out. And he says, somebody touch me. And they said, no, Jesus, it's, it's a crowd. Let's just keep going. And he turns around. Now, and this is a seriously patriarchal society. So he's... He, he actually apparently didn't embrace that because he talks a lot to women, which is a, a whole other challenge for us, right? But he turns around to this woman who I'm imagining she's poor. She couldn't get it. She couldn't afford the great medical help. And she's got this condition that makes her unclean. And he not only recognizes her, he not only gives her value, he calls her daughter and he heals her. Now, this is God. But this is the God who is tender. This is the God who is gentle. This is not the God who stands around with a list saying, uh, I, I remember one time at a, at a church we went to, a, a guy came to our church visiting and had, had long, long hair. And he came to Christ, and I remember the first thing he was told to do was cut that hair. He was like, we're going we're gonna to let you in, but you've got to deal with that hair. And I have a hard time squaring that with a Christ who would turn around to someone who has a whole lot more issues than hair some of us would love hair, by the way. I, he would turn around to her and call her daughter and affirm her as someone he loved. Would we reduce his faith? Would we reduce his love to something that's a list that ultimately serves to make us look good, make us feel better about ourselves? He is not that way. So what's this all mean? What does it mean that Jesus is this way? Uh, on, on his own, he is beautiful. But in contrast to this, this sort of sham of religion, this empty religion, he is just starkly beautiful. What's that mean? To be sure, it ought to be encouraging, right? To those of us who know when we're quiet, we know when we're alone, that we are bruised. We may even be afraid. We may have come back from that 
that conference or that heard that testimony and just realized that everybody has it together but me. Everybody's kids behave but mine. Everybody's marriage is great but mine. Everybody reads their Bible every day but me. Every man leads uh, family devotions but me. And so we're feeling really, really, really horrible. And part of it's because we're, we're not able to admit that we're broken. We actually think that if we could just try harder, if we could just get a different study Bible, if we could just whatever. Look, the fact that Jesus is so tender and gentle while being very God and very God gives us license to admit that we are bruised and we are needy. It is an encouragement to be honest that we need what he, second encouragement, freely provides, which is his grace. Because the very Jesus who would not uh, break the bruised reed or, or quench out the smoldering wick doesn't just not do that. He moves to build up the, the reed. He moves to rekindle the smoldering wick. And so it encourages us not only to admit that we need, but to find in him um, a grace and a mercy that will meet our need. And then as we see that, uh, to be sure that should lead us to see him as worthy of affection and worship. But it also probably means practically there's application in that for us and other folks. So I want to, as we move toward the end here, I want to um, give a few examples of how that may play itself out. And, and I will say, I told my kids this yesterday, I said, um, hey, y'all, I just want you to know you, I'm going to be doing a sermon on being gentle and tender. And for some reason, they thought that was funny. Um, uh, I, it, it was as if I said I was going to give you all advice on hair care products. And it, um, I, I, look, I, I think about it within the elder board. You know, the, uh, God has equipped his body totally. Uh, like we see new gifts on display today, which is really cool. We needed them, and he had provided them. But we, we see that within the elder board. Within the elder board, you've got guys who are a little more pastoral, and then you've got guys that are not as pastoral. Um, I, th- I told Lisa this morning, it's like, you know, you got that disciple who was leaning on Jesus because he was just this really tender disciple. And then you got like James and John, the sons of thunder or whatever. I'd be the guy that they'd be going, dude, you need to loosen up. You know, the sons of thunder would have been telling me I needed to be sweet. So I, I don't give you these examples of this sermon because of this mastery of tenderness that I have. Uh, I would give it to you because we need it. Uh, so example one, uh, a guy. Start with a guy, I'll go to the lady, I'll go to the kids. Uh, a guy comes home, uh, maybe it's from a retreat, uh, maybe it's from church hearing a sermon, maybe it's a Bible study, maybe a, another brother has spoken into his life. And he realizes that he has dropped the ball. He has not been leading at home. He, he probably knew that. He probably was walking around with a load of guilt anyway. But he has been moved now to do something about it, maybe for the 50th time. He comes home and says, I want to be a better husband, a better dad, a better leader in my home. Now, at that moment, he is, he is bruised. We're all bruised, remember that? But this is a bruised guy, and he has failed. Let's not give him too much of a pass. He may have abdicated. He may have abdicated leadership of the home to his wife. That is fairly common. But he is... He is going, because grace has moved, he is going to make an effort to, to turn a corner and to be obedient. In that moment, the people around him, kids, older kids maybe, especially the wife, they have a really unique opportunity to be like Jesus. 
when he says, honey, can we pray tonight? Or can we have a family devotion? Or whatever he, whatever he does to try to make a little move toward walking out being a godly, godly husband, godly father. Um, the wife can either fan that or she can step on it. She can either, she can either take the reed and just crush it or she can hold it up. And I'll tell you how that works. Uh, keep in mind, guys, big, loud, NASCAR loving, whatever, but we're, we're, we're really insecure. And we need our wives' encouragement more than we would we ever let them know. But we make this effort, and if our wife says, that's great, I'm excited about that, or absolutely, and maybe the next day, hey, that was really cool when you prayed with me. I love that. That was really encouraging. That is a way to fan that flame. But if the response is, oh, he's been to a retreat, He's got the fever. I've seen this one, what, eight retreats in a row. Um, you might as well just get water and pour it on the wick. It, it is a, it's a real example of how a wife particularly can, can either fan or crush what is a, a spark of grace moving. And it goes both ways. A lady can come home from the same kind of thing. And the lady says, you know, I, maybe I, I have not been being the godly mom or wife I need to be. And I want to, by God's grace, I want to make an effort to grow. The husband can recognize that and encourage it, or he can either dismiss it, make a snide comment about it, or just ignore it. And in both cases, uh, we can pretty much guarantee that we're either going to see it, the effort again or we're not. Because the guy who says, I want to lead the quiet time, or the lady who says, I want to encourage my husband. I know sometimes... I say snide things to him, sometimes even in front of other people, and I break him down in front of other people. I don't want to do that anymore. I really want to encourage him. When, when that lady does that, or that guy does that, they encourage it to, uh, to happen again. I know if I, if I say, Lisa, can we pray? And she says, I love that. Yes. I bet I'll do it again. And she says, that was great. I bet I'll do it again. But if she doesn't have time, or if she dismisses me, I think on some level I'll go, I tried. I'm not doing that again. And it just and it just the husband and wife. The kid. Think about the kid who comes home who says, um, you know, I was at youth, whatever, and and I know I believe in Jesus and I I am a Christian, but I've not been taking it seriously to use popular language. And I'm gonna try to follow Jesus. And um a parent could if they're so inclined and so not acting like Jesus, could dismiss that as, oh, they've been to, they've been to youth camp. Uh, they want a new study Bible. I'm, you know, this, this little seven-day run is going to cost me 40 bucks at Lifeway. Um, or, yeah, you read your Bible, but your room's still a wreck. Yeah, you read your Bible, but I still heard you fuss at your little sister or brother, whatever. And... It's sort of the opposite of encouraging that little spark into a flame. As opposed to saying, you know what, I think that's great. Matter of fact, when you read it, if you want to talk about it, how did that go? You see, it's one thing to see Jesus as beautiful, and he is. To to see him as being mind-bogglingly tender, especially in light of his power. But it's another thing to, 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 to bring that down to where we are at home and say, Wow. How am I to be like Jesus? 
toward my wife, toward my husband, toward my kids, toward a brother in the church, toward a sister in the church. That's the application we've got to walk out, or we just have some cognitive appreciation. And that won't build up this body. It won't build up our our spouses. It won't build up our kids. And it won't bear the fruit that that Jesus is modeling for us. I, I would tell you, by the way, that the only way you'll do that, the only way a husband will will make those recognitions, will, will see his wife and encourage her as he should, or a wife will, with any sort of sustained ability, encourage her husband toward godliness, or kids and parents. The only way we'll do that is by God's grace. And so I would remind you, um, and you'll hear it twice today, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So even as we recognize grace, that Jesus is so gracious, our only hope for walking it out in our own life is that same grace. Now, let me conclude um, with a couple of thoughts. One, um, to those here who do not know Christ, uh, I touched on this early on. I want to hit it at the end. Um, I, I, would, I would share with you sort of what I said in the beginning. If you don't know Christ as your, uh, as your friend, I, I don't know if we understand Savior language, personal Savior. I don't even know what that means. But if, you, if you're distant from Christ, I will tell you that my only invitation to you is that you repent not of your list of sins. Don't, don't hear me hold up a list of moral do-goods. That, yeah, you need to do all these things, check all these lists. That isn't, that isn't what I would ask you to repent of. I would ask you to repent of the notion that you could save yourself from that sin. You know, the, the sin, it, it isn't the little, the small s sins that, those are symptomatic of the big S. The big sin issue that separates us from a holy God. And if you think that there's any hope of you trying harder, holding your mouth just right, being active enough in church, I'm telling you, you'll just be frustrated, but you won't be any more saved. Another church term. You won't, you won't know the gospel anymore. So I would call you, if you don't know Christ, not to repent of cussing, not to repent of cheating on your taxes. I would call, to, call you to repent of thinking that you somehow could be okay with God on your own. That's the, that's the big sin, that you wouldn't need the sacrifice that was made for you. And if you would do that, look, the, the journey of growth, that's after. You can grow in all sorts of practical ways after, but you've got to come to Christ first. If you don't understand that, please afterwards see, see a, a, an elder, a pastor, a leader, somebody on your road. We, we'd love to help you understand that. But finally, for the believer, um, I would say that Christ's example, uh, it is beautiful. Um, think about it. The very God of very God is so tender that when Ray screws up for the umpteenth time, and put your name in there, when you screw up for the umpteenth time, he really isn't sitting there with a scorecard thinking of how tisk tisk he is so disappointed in you. He's saying, I have grace for you. I love you, and I'm not going to kick you when you're down. I'm going to bring you up with grace. That's a beauty that should lead us to worship, but it should lead us to action. Because we who have been given much mercy and grace and tenderness, we sort of owe it to those around us. By God's grace, of course, because we can't do it in our own strength. But it's, it's sort of incumbent on us to treat others that way too. For me, and probably for you, that's that's going to be a long journey. 
But uh, again, he who began a work in us is, is going to do it. And, and he has given us what we need to do it. All we need for life and godliness. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Before I do that, let me say that, and then an elder will close. Uh, in between, uh, I'll ask uh, you guys to pray uh, in response. Um, as Tom often does, I'll ask you to pray uh, clearly so we can hear you, uh, briefly so others can pray. And if there's any sort of direction that I would offer, uh, I would ask you to help us, uh, to, to pray that God would help us to see Christ this beautifully so that we would be moved to affections. Um, trying harder, I will tell you, at the ripe old age of 46, having been a believer since I was 18, um, trying harder is just not a winning strategy. Uh, to those who know Christ and are empowered by his, his grace, effort is important. But effort in and of itself is not sufficient for what we need to do. So I'm going to ask you to join me in praying, even as I start, that we would see him clearly, that he would be beautiful and lovely, and we would be drawn to him. And as we're drawn to him with new affections, we would be moved to walk in response to his beauty, not in any way to, to earn it. And, and then, again, I would ask you to pray briefly, clearly, and then an elder will close. Father, um, you have given us um, in, in, in Scripture and beyond, but particularly in this passage, you've shown us Christ as being so different than empty uh, religious hypocrisy, so, so much more than form, so much more than legalism. Jesus, you are powerful yet personal. You are holy yet near and tender and gentle. And we thank you that you have not only been that way, but you've explained it and modeled it to us in your life. I pray, because even though you deserve it, it seems so natural that we would love one so lovely, but we are so broken that we need you to help us. And so by your grace, would you help us to see you as lovely? And would you kindle in us fresh affection for you? And that out of the abundance of that affection, we would move toward obedience starting with the relationships right around us. Um, thank you for the gospel that empowers this hope. Thank you that um, we will um, be successful because of your grace, uh, that you will complete the work now and in eternity to come. We, will, we have this hope because of your kindness to us. So um, move us as a body. Uh, move the believers here toward greater affections for those who don't know you. Would you open their eyes to how good you are, so much more and better than some code of, of a list of do's and don'ts? Would they find in you rest from effort and then a reason to walk in obedience? I pray that in Jesus' name.